Good morning. So for those of you who, uh, I know a lot of you, but those who don't know me uh, very well, um, I grew up in California, in Silicon Valley, before it was Silicon Valley, uh, when there were still a lot of orchards, fruit orchards around. My grandfather actually had a prune orchard, um, a hobby farm, south of San Jose and Morgan Hill, and I picked prunes for him every summer. I grew up in a Christian home. My father was a uh, first-generation Christian. My mother had a long history of Christians. My uh, grandparents, her parents, were uh, missionaries with the American Sunday School Union. And so I grew up in a Christian home. I uh, trusted Christ when I was in first grade. My first grade Sunday school uh, teacher led me to the Lord. So I've known the Lord for my entire life. I didn't get really serious about my faith until uh, later in high school. And then in college, I uh, got involved in the Navigators, and that really helped me uh, grow my faith. And, uh, and then after my wife and I got married when we were seniors in uh, college, uh, and when I first started my first job with Oscar Meyer in uh, Southern California, uh, we got asked to teach Sunday school. And so I've ended up, I've basically every year since then, I've either taught Sunday school and or been involved in Awana. Um, so I've taught for a long time. Um, and this message I'm giving today is actually one that I gave back in 2005. Um, so if you remember uh, last year, probably a lot of you remember, I had a heart attack, a pretty bad heart attack, uh, one they call the Widowmaker. And uh, thanks to my wife, Sandy, who heard me fall <laughs> right when it happened, called 911 immediately, and thanks to the very excellent fire department in Chippewa Falls and... Uh, uh, the police department there, um, they found me fast enough and got me to the hospital quickly, and they was able to, I was, I was fine. Um, although I have no memory of that week. It, my memory of that week is totally gone. But what some of you don't know is that's not the first time that I almost died. And this message I preached in uh, our church in DeForest in 2005, um, a few months after that um, incident, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. So my message this morning is called Blessed Through Trials. Why does God allow bad things to happen to us? Um, trials, pain, and suffering, um, we weren't created for that. When God created the world, he um, looked at everything and said it was very good. It was a perfect world. There was no sin. Everything was perfect. But unfortunately, Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and sinned, and that not only impacted them, but it impacted the entire world. God told them, like, now it's gonna, work is going to be difficult for you. You're going to grow thorns and thistles, and uh, women are going to have pain in childbirth, and everything was affected. And so, unfortunately, we live in a world that's affected by, by their choice. So we have um, famines, volcanoes, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, um, war. Everyone is affected. Whether we're saved or not, we're all affected by those things. So why doesn't God stop them? I remember when Hurricane Katrina happened, um, people at work were talking about, like, why did God allow this to happen? Why didn't he stop it? And I thought about that. And I thought, well, you know, God could stop it. But because of, uh, uh, because of the fallen world, the way that he could stop it is he could call for the end of the world, throw Satan into the lake of fire, and everyone who had not trusted Christ their Savior would also be thrown in as well. But as it says in Second Peter, um, God does not wish that any should perish. 
And so God is not going to call for the end of the world. God's not going to get rid of all those bad things, earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, everything else, until he knows that everyone has had the opportunity to trust Christ as their Savior. Everyone who's going to come to trust Christ as their Savior has had that opportunity and made that decision. And then he will call for the end of the world. So in the intervening time, until that happens, we're going to suffer trials. So when after this event happened to me in 2005, I was thinking about you know, how God uses trials. And I thought, well, how, what is God doing? How, what things is he doing there? And so I think there's three things that, um, things that God does. And there, I'm not a, uh, I've not been to Bible school. I'm not a theologian. And I haven't read any theology on this. This is just my way of understanding what God is doing when we go through trials based on reading what's in his word. So there's other ways you could look at it. There's other ways you could divide the things. You could divide it into more categories or fewer categories. But I divide it into three categories. The first is, is pruning. Example, the best example of pruning in the Bible is Job. Job, I never understood the book of Job until I read uh, a book a number of years ago called Secrets of the Vine, where it talks about in uh, John 15, and it says here uh, in John 15, 1 and 2, I am the true vine, this is Jesus talking to his disciples in the upper room the night before he was crucified, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now, as I said, my grandfather uh, had a prune orchard, and I picked prunes for him every summer. And he would prune his trees every year. And why do you prune fruit trees, or any tree? To make it more fruitful. Um, If you don't prune it, it grows kind of, branches get over, they cross over each other, they don't get enough sun, the tree puts, tries to grow all this fruit, and so it ends up kind of scraggly and not doesn't taste as good. If you prune it properly, you get really nice juicy uh, apples, or in, in my grandfather's case, great, great looking prunes. Um, and uh, that's why you prune trees. Now, if a branch had fallen off, say, would it make any sense to prune that branch? No, it wouldn't make any sense to prune that branch. So, if you look at the next slide on pruning, pruning only occurs, occurs if we're walking with God. You don't prune a branch that's not attached to the tree, right? You don't prune uh, a grape branch if it's not attached to the vine. It, that wouldn't make any sense. <clears throat> and so God doesn't prune us unless we're already walking with him. Um, this can explain one thing why there's a number of times in the Psalms, and I'm sure many of us have probably felt this before, like, why does it seem like people that are not following God that are doing the wrong thing? It seems like they have a better life sometimes than I do. Like things are going better for them than for me. Part of that reason, and many of the Psalms talk about that, part of that reason is God's not pruning those people. They're not part of his. You don't prune a branch that's not, not attached to the vine. But those that are, he will prune. It's not the result of our sin. God used to dry it close, dry us closer to him and to increase our faith and make our lives more fruitful. Now, when you're being pruned, don't avoid the Lord's pruning. Work with him with the pruning. Because if you don't do that, if you try and avoid what the Lord's trying to prune out of your life, then you could fall into sin. And that could lead to the next category of thing that God will do with that, which is discipline. An example of that is King David. So it's really interesting to study King Saul and King David, and look at their two lives and say, 
What was different about them? If you look at Saul, God took him away as king because he didn't obey him. What did Saul do? Um, Let's see. Well, he made a sacrifice when he wasn't supposed to. Samuel told him to wait, and he didn't wait. Um, He didn't completely kill um, the uh, Amalekites. He uh, tried to kill David, and uh, he consulted a medium, all things that are bad. And those, those are bad things, but uh, you look at King David, and he had his, uh, one of his uh, trusted uh, fighting men. He desired his wife, and so he had him put in the front of the battle where he would be killed so he could basically take his wife. Now that, to me, is a much more horrible sin than anything that Saul did. So why was Saul rejected as king? And David was called by God, a man that follows God's heart, and he was promised that the Messiah would be one of his descendants. The difference is, Saul never repented. When he was confronted by his sin by Samuel, Saul just made excuses. He never repented. When David was confronted by Nathan by his sin, David grieved over his sin. He confessed and he repented and he was... He pleaded with God. He said, God, please forgive me. I have really done wrong. So when we're being disciplined by God, we need to repent of whatever it is that we're doing that's causing, uh, causing that. Um, so d- discipline uh, occurs when we allow sin to reign in our life. And God uses, suf- uses discipline to draw us back. And when we're being disciplined... Again, we need to participate with God in that. We need to allow him to do the work that he's trying to do. Figure out what it is that we need to remove from our life, that we need to change whatever we're doing wrong, and allow him to discipline us and change that. A good example of that is in uh, Jeremiah 21. Um, The Babylonians were, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was coming, and they were going to defeat Jerusalem. And Jeremiah told the people there, through message from God, and said, Surrender to the Babylonians, surrender to them, and you'll, you'll be okay. But if you stay in the city, you will die. So participate with my discipline, and you'll be okay. And those that did, you remember Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were taken to, uh, taken to uh, Babylon, and they did great. And they were able to serve God there in a mighty, mighty way. So if you're being disciplined, participate with God and don't avoid it, because if you continuously avoid God's discipline, then that could lead uh, to punishment. Now, before we go to that, to punishment, how do you know if you're being pruned? Which the two primary things that happen to you, punishment we'll talk about in a second, but that doesn't happen to, to us too often. How do you know there's between pruning and discipline? So the way is you pray. If something's happened to you and you don't know, like, God, why is this happening to me? Go to God, seek God. And God, through his Holy Spirit, will reveal to you what it is. If he's trying to prune something, then seek God like, God, what is it that you're trying to remove from my life? Or what are you trying to change about how my approach to things that I can serve you better? And if he reveals to you that's discipline, God, what sin am I allowing my life that I need to give up, that I need to get rid of, that I need to get help with so that I can get back to uh, being the person that you want me to be? So the next, uh, the last thing that God could be doing is Punishment. Punishment, an example of that is Ananias and Sapphira. So Ananias and Sapphira were uh, two Christians in the early church. In the early church, the Christians had, says they all had all things in common. So 
people were selling property and they were giving the apostles to distribute to people that had need. And Anastasius and Fire decided they were going to do that. But there was a little problem. They sold a piece of property and they came and gave the money to the apostles. They said it was all the money from the property, but they had actually held back part of the money. Now, it was their property. They could have sold it and kept the money for themselves. That was fine. God wouldn't have had a problem with that. They could have given part of the money and told the apostles, like, we sold a property, we're keeping part of ourselves, and we're giving part of it to you. But they wanted to look like we're, we're really good people who are we're selling property, and we're giving you all the money. And they kept part of it themselves. So they were lying to God. They were lying to the Holy Spirit. And uh, it says in Acts 5, when they came, when Ananias came and gave the money, he said, when Ananias heard these words that Peter told him, you have lied, not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. Great fear came upon all who heard of it. That's important. So punishment only occurs when we reject God and his plan for us. So God has maybe tried to prune us, he's tried to uh, discipline us, and we've rejected that. And so the only thing left, he knows we're not changing, and he's going to punish us. God uses the last resort when we refuse to respond to his discipline. And he uses punishment, I, I believe, one of the primary things that punishment is used for is as a warning to others. If you remember back from the last slide, he said, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. When Ananias and Sapphira, and Sapphira came in later, and they asked her, like, so is this what you, this how much money you uh, gave? Is this how much you, you sold the property for? He said, yeah. So, well, the men that carried your husband out are, are going to carry you out. And she immediately died, was killed by God, and they, she was taken out. And everyone had great fear. Everyone realized this is serious business, right? Lying to God is serious business, and we need to be really careful. It was a warning to other people. Um, God gives us plenty of opportunity to repent. So he's not, he's not mean in that respect. Uh, I love Psalm 103. It said, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If you read the account of the Israelites, God again and again provided for them and was patient with them, but they kept not following him. They kept grumbling. They kept rejecting him. And so eventually he punished them. And then later on, when they were actually in the promised land, they kept rejecting and following other gods, and he took them into captivity um, as discipline. But that, that phrase that I talked to, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that's actually mentioned. It's so important. It's actually mentioned nine times in the Old Testament. So we, some people tend to think that, you know, the God of the Old Testament is kind of a mean God, and the God New Testament is a really nice, you know, friendly God. God is the same in both places. God punishes in the New Testament, and he punished in the Old Testament. God was patient in the Old Testament. He's patient in the New Testament. God did not change. If you just, a casual reading of the scriptures, you might think that there's a difference, but God is the same in both if you really look at it closely. So, again, why does God use trials? In the next slide. God uses trials to draw us to others and draw us and or others closer to him. So he wants to bring us back into his loving care. And that's what he's doing there. So why is it that we don't always feel blessed? So the title of my message is Blessed Through Trials. Why don't we always feel blessed when we're going through trials, pain, suffering, uh, and things like that? Well, part of it is we tend to have a worldly view instead of, uh, uh, instead of an eternal view. So example of that, Esau took a worldly view. 
the story of Jacob and Esau, uh, Jacob, or Esau was a hunter, and Jacob liked to stay more in the tent, and he liked to cook. Man after my own heart, I like cooking too. Um, and he was cooking some stew, and Esau comes in from hunting, and he's just famished. He said, give me some of that stew. I'm starving to death. And Jacob said, well, you can have some stew if you give me your birthright. And he says, well, what good is my birthright? I'm starving to death, so give me some of that stew. You can have my birthright. The Bible says he despised his birthright. And so Jacob became the one that carried on, and he was later changed his name to Israel. The nation of Israel is named after Jacob. He took, Esau took a worldly view. Jesus, however, took an eternal view. Um, it says in Hebrews 12, too, that Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He was looking forward to what God was doing in eternity. And because of that joy, he, he was able to endure the cross. Now, I have a few more examples of um, the difference between the world's way and God's way. So if you want to be exalted, um, what's the world's way? Well, promote yourself. And God's, God's way is, if you want to be exalted, humble yourself. If you want to be first, the world's way is push others out of the way. God's way is be last. If you want to be rich, the world's way is accumulate wealth. God's way, give wealth away. If you want to be blessed, the world's way is avoid pain at all costs. God's way is actually endure trials. If you want to get to heaven, the world's way is have less sin than other people. As long as I'm a pretty good person and I'm doing better than other people, I'm going to be okay. God's way is the only way to get to heaven is acknowledge your sinner with absolutely no hope and trust Christ as your Savior, and then you will get to heaven. So the next slide, we think of blessing as something received in this world. We tend to think of blessing as something we receive in this world. Oh, I got a great new car. I got a nice new house. Oh, I've got a wonderful family. And those are blessings, don't get me wrong. But that's not the only blessing. God really defines blessing as something that we receive in eternity. Remember the Beatitudes. So I was going to, uh, you know, Justin, when he's up here, he always likes to define things with Webster's 1828 Dictionary. So I thought, I'm going to look up blessing and blessed in Webster's 1828 Dictionary. And so I did. And it was a, it was a good definition. It actually talked about eternal things as well. And, but I was, as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, actually, Jesus gives a pretty good definition of what God considers blessing in the Beatitudes. So let's read those quickly here and remember what, what it says and see what God's definition is of blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will show mercy, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And here it gets really different. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. So we can see what God considers to be blessing is much different than we, what we often consider to be blessing. Uh, and that led me to think of, you know, why would God bless me with something here on earth that would cause me loss in eternity? God's not going to do that. God is more concerned about us in eternity than he has his, for us here on earth. Um, 
The less of this is uh, Solomon. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is a, is a difficult book. Uh, if you've ever read that, um, you read through it and it's like, what in the world is going on here? It's just, everything is meaningless. Like, what in the world? Ecclesiastes doesn't make any sense until you get to the last two verses of the book. <laughs> and basically, his summary is like, he goes through like, everything in the world is meaningless. Wealth and money and all these other things is all meaningless. And he basically sums up the end. He says, uh, all is meaningless, but fear God and keep his commandments. So he basically concluded after, after his life that the only thing that actually had any meaning was to fear God and keep his commandments. So that is eternity. We tend to look at things on earth. God is more concerned with eternity. So what's a few other benefits of trials? Um, it gives us a more complete understanding of God's sovereignty. And that's part of what uh, the book of Job is about. Um, at the end of the book, Job goes through it. He, he loses basically all of his possessions, everything. His children die. His wife tells him, hey, curse God and die. And he doesn't do that. And it says he was a righteous man. He didn't do, that's why he didn't understand it. Like, he's a righteous man. Like, why is God doing this? It was, it was pruning. What he needed to have was a better understanding of God's sovereignty. And at the end, God asked him a series of questions that is impossible for Job to answer. Only God knows the answer to those questions. And Job was like, okay, really? Well, yeah, I knew you, but I really didn't know you as well as I know you now. Um, and it wasn't just for him. So the book of Job is for all of us to understand God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over the world. Um, another benefit trial is it's a witness to others if we respond positively to pruning and discipline. An example of that is the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul, on the road to, I believe it was Antioch, um, was going there to, to persecute and kill the Christians. And Jesus appeared to him and spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, like, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, who are you are persecuting? And to Saul's credit, he actually, besides all his persecuting, he really was trying to follow God. And when he actually was confronted by that, he realized, well, I've made a huge mistake. And so he repented, and he went to the city, and he's like, he was blind. He couldn't see anything. But God told a man to go and pray for him, and his sight would be restored. And the man said, like, <laughs> it was an interesting conversation. You read, like, uh, Lord, you know this guy actually was, like, persecuting people, Christians and killing them? Like, you sure you want me to go to this guy? And he said, yes. So to his credit, he actually went and did that. And... Saul um, became one of the greatest missionaries that has ever been, led many people to Christ, basically spread the gospel throughout the, most of the known world at that time. Um, and so because of what happened to him, he was able to, um, to do those things, to take Christ to other people. And another way that God uses the thing is to comfort others. So it says in uh, 2 Corinthians, um, in the first part of 2 Corinthians, that God helps us to comfort others with the comfort that he gives us when we've been afflicted. It's interesting when you look at things that have happened to people, um, gone through a serious medical illness, um, their children have, or someone has died, or <clears throat> uh, extreme violence. Many times those people will start a movement or Go and help other people. One of the ways they heal is by helping other people that have gone through a similar thing. And that's what God does when, uh, one of the ways he uses difficulties and trials and pain in our life is we can then comfort and encourage others that are going through a similar situation. 
And God also uses it to build our faith and uh, to help us to learn to persevere. So now I'll get to what happened to me in 2005. So in uh, 2005, um, my son Carl, some of you know my son Carl, uh, got married and uh, we were there and I was starting to feel a little sick. Um, and, but I was able to make it through the wedding, right? And we got back home and I had some critical things to finish at work and I was at work that week and I just started getting worse and worse. And finally on, I think it was a Thursday, uh, I, I was finishing up this project that I had to do and I was feeling horrible. And finally I finished a little bit late and I went home and uh, I just kept getting worse and worse. And uh, they, at that time they thought I had asthma. It turned out I don't. I just, when I get a respiratory virus, I tend to get an asthma-like reaction. And so I had an albuterol inhaler. So I was taking that, but that wasn't working. So my kids did have asthma and they had a nebulizer. So I nebulized with albuterol. So I had quite a bit of albuterol, which turned out to be probably not a good thing. And uh, then uh, I got so sick. I had a fever of, I can't remember, it was like over 103 um, and my mother was still there. She had come out for the wedding, and she was still there. And so my wife, Sandy, and my mother were talking about, like, well, what should we do with him? And they were debating, like, well, they should take him to urgent care. And it's like, well, it's getting kind of late. And so they were talking back and forth, and finally it was like, well, it's late enough now. We probably should just take him to the emergency room, which turned out to be a really good thing because if they had, not, if they had taken me to urgent care, I probably would not be standing here talking to you today. I probably would be dead. Um, so they took me to the emergency room, and I got to the emergency room, and... It was really crowded. It was a really, there were all kinds of people there. And I'm sitting in a, a wheelchair, just feeling absolutely horrible. Probably the worst I've ever felt in my life. It's like, how long is this going to take? And it must have been, I don't know how long it was, two hours, I'm guessing. Three hours? Three hours, okay. Uh, <laughs> until midnight. And finally, they got me into the emergency room. The second thing, if I had gotten into one of the emergency rooms immediately, I probably would not be standing here today. Got in the emergency room, they put me on the table, and I was bad at that, and they just had me laying down the table. And they attached a bunch of electrodes and things to me, and um, then they left, and shortly thereafter, I just went out. And Sandy went out, ran out, and it's like, help, help, like something's going on. And they came in, and first they had put, I think they had put the electrodes on me, they could automatically just push a button, and it would shock my heart. So they pushed that and shocked me back, and they had to end up doing it twice, and then when I finally woke up, I opened my eyes, and there's all these people standing around me like, uh, what's going on here? <laughs> like, well, we're glad to have you back. Like, uh, okay, where was I? Um, so what, what had happened was, normally your heart beats, and it's your, your ventricles uh, are the, what primarily pump your blood throughout your body, and they're, you know, going ba-bum, 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 pump your blood throughout your body. Well, I went into ventricular fibrillation, which basically your heart just goes into random pattern very quickly, just randomly like this, which isn't pumping hard into your body. So basically, I was getting no oxygen into the rest of my body. And they shocked me back into uh, sinus rhythm. And uh, then they were debating, like, Man, maybe what's going on with him? And like, well, maybe he has pneumonia. So they did an X-ray or a CAT scan, and so they're debating, like, oh, we're not sure if he has pneumonia or not. I since found out, like, for some reason with me, I've had pneumonia a few times, and it never shows up on an x-ray. I don't know. Even when I almost died from pneumonia, it didn't show up on an x-ray. But they did a test that showed that I had the bacteria that can cause pneumonia, and so they decided I did have pneumonia. So they started the intravenous antibiotics, took me up to the ICU, um, but they hadn't quite figured out one critical thing yet. They didn't have those results back, I guess. And uh, uh, in the ICU, 
they'd hook me up to the automatic thing in case my heart went out, and I could hear in the background, and my eyes are closed, and I could hear in the background, the monitor going, beep, 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 as my heart is beating, and finally it went, and then all of a sudden it started going, beep, 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 like, I started getting lightheaded, and then boom, it automatically shocked me. I was still awake, and if you have ever seen on TV when they, you know, like, clear, and shock the person, that's exactly what happens. That's what I go, boom. It feels like somebody took a sledgehammer and just went whammo on your chest. And I go, oh, that hurt. And the nurse that was there in the room said, like, you felt that? And I said, yes, I felt that. She says, most people aren't conscious when that happens. I go, well, I was conscious. <laughs> uh, so fortunately, right about that time, they realized that my blood potassium was extremely low. And put an IV of potassium, and then I, my heart was fine after that. I still had to recover from pneumonia, but, but my heart was fine. As it turned out, a couple months later, um, one of my doctors um, had been at a conference, and he came back and said, like, you know, they just have figured out that if you're on a uh, diuretic, I was on a diuretic for high blood pressure, and if you take albuterol, that can lower your blood potassium significantly. It's like, oh, okay, interesting. So that's how... Albuterol came into it because I had had a heavy dose of albuterol. And then plus with the pneumonia, I got so sick I was losing all kinds of fluids. That will lower your potassium. So it was pretty low. Uh, the doctor said it wasn't really low enough that that just by itself should have caused me an fibrillation, but I tend to have a very strong vasovagal response. So that can be like you, if you have a strong vasovagal episode syncope, you can pass out. I don't usually pass out from that, but I sometimes can feel kind of lightheaded. And when you're feeling nauseated, that can activate that vasovagal response. And so the combination of those two is probably what caused that to happen. So after that, um, you know, the next day they took me out. And I was fine then, except for recovering from pneumonia. So they wanted to keep me, and they did, I think, every heart test known to mankind, and everything was perfect with my heart. There was nothing wrong. But they put me in a, in a, a ward, and like at the end of the place where I could have quiet. And so one night, a few nights later, um, Sandy and others who were visiting me had gone home, and I was there, and I was going to watch something on TV or watch a movie, and I just was, I was not feeling great. I was just kind of antsy, and so I started pacing and talking to God and asking him, like, God, I don't understand why this, why this happened to me, and, and I'm not sure what prompted me. I said, you know, God, there's a few things in my life that I've always wondered about. Would you tell me what you were doing there in my life? And so I'm sitting there pacing back and forth, and I said, so... So the first thing I asked God was, when I was probably four or five, my um, uh, father was a resident. He was a, became a doctor. He was a resident at University of uh, California, San Francisco Medical School. And we were living in San Francisco. And uh, I, was, I was on the street, and some kid threw a can at me. Now, those of you who are under 60 wouldn't probably don't understand this, but soda cans didn't used to have a pop top you had a little thing that looked like a triangle that you would kind of like, so on one side it would have a thing that you could open like a bottle cap, and the other side was this little triangle thing that you could open the can and make a little triangle hole. And you'd open the one side, and then the other side you'd punch just a little bit so you could get, some, you'd get air on it. Well, what someone had done is they had opened it, but then they'd gone all the way, so it had opened out the outside of the can, so, and they'd done it all the way around, so there was like a ring of sharp teeth around the can. And this kid threw it at me, and it cut my lip pretty badly, and I had to have uh, stitches. And my mother told me one time, I asked her about that, and she said, you know, before that, you were a, a pretty outgoing, you know, 
kid, and after that, you became much more quieter. I was like, God, what were you doing there? And uh, he said, well, a little bit of background before I say what, what he said there. Um, so my, I've done a number of spiritual gifts tests. My primary spiritual gift is teaching. My secondary gift is service, which is a little unusual, things that I've read. Usually people have, if they have you know, primary, secondary spiritual gift, they're either both speaking gifts or both serving gifts. And speaking gifts would be like encouragement, teaching, prophecy. Prophecy not like telling the future, but prophecy like telling the truth. Many pastors are, have the spiritual gift of prophecy. And serving would be like uh, giving and service or helps and uh, compassion. And usually they would both either be serving gifts or teaching gifts or, or um, speaking gifts. And uh, God said, I wanted to modify your gift of teaching with the gift of serving. Because teachers can tend to be sometimes kind of black and white, like, like prophets can be. It's like, well, this is the truth. This is what you need to do and not have a lot of compassion uh, about that. And uh, so God said, I wanted to modify your gift of teaching so you would be a compassionate teacher. Wow, that was, that was a big thing. And so I thought about that for a while. And then I asked, so the other thing, God, I want to know is my father died when I was in um, college, when I was a freshman in college. It was a scuba diving accident. He and my mother were taking lessons to scuba dive. And we still don't know to this day what actually happened, but, but he died in a scuba diving accident. And so I asked him, like, what were you doing when my father died? Not, I wasn't asking for, like, why did you take my father for his sake, but what were you doing in my life with that? And he said, I wanted you to look to me as your father. God promises the word that he will be a father to the fatherless, a father to the orphan. He'll be a husband to the widows. And God, God did that. He brought some men into my life that could, would help me. Uh, he brought me into navigators in college. It was a big help to me. And God became my father. I mean, he was my father before that. God says he's our father. I had trusted Christ as my savior, but really I had to look to him for many things he would look to a father for. Um, and it was like, wow, okay. And after, after he said me those two things then, all of a sudden he brought to mind this verse that is up here. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And I felt God telling me, by the wounds I've given you, like it says in 2 Corinthians, others will be comforted. Wow. And I just (laughs) sat there crying. It's like, I had a real understanding of how God uses our trials. Now, I've gone through a number of trials since then. Not most of them, I'm not sure why God's using them. Maybe one day when I get to see him in heaven, He'll, I'll find out like why he brought those. Like, you know, my heart attack last year. I'm not sure what he was doing there. Maybe so he would encourage me to give this message today. I don't know. <laughs> um, so the next thing when I was preparing for this message that God gave me, uh, I really like the passage in, uh, passages in John where Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the upper room before he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane, before he's going to be crucified. And there's one part in there that I'd read over many times before, but I just kind of always glossed over it. It's like, oh yeah. But this had new meaning this time. And this was in John 16. And to set up, um, you can do the next slide, what um, the setup to this is, Jesus told his disciples, in a little while, 
you're going to see me, then you're not going to see me, then you're going to see me again. And you will have sorrow, but then you'll have joy. And their disciples are going like, what is he talking about? We don't understand, like, we're going to see him, and then we're not going to see him, and then we're going to see him again. And like, what is going on? And then Jesus tells them this. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her time, her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So you can look at one way our trials, our difficulties, are kind of like, in a way, like a woman in labor. So the pain is real. We don't have to like it. You know, I say most women here would say, like, birth was fairly painful. Um, you know, some have an easier time than others. Some have a really difficult time. But um, it, it is pain. And it can seem like it's going to last forever, particularly when you're going through a trial. It can seem like if you've got bad sickness, it can seem like it's going to last forever. And we question why it's necessary. But we can know that it is good because the pain has a purpose and that can help us endure it. So no woman who's, who's in labor would wish her baby away to, take, to get rid of her pain, right? In the middle of labor, no one's going to say like, well, I don't want this pain anymore, so God, just take the baby away and I'll be fine. Like, no. Like, I'm, I, want to, I want this baby to come. I want to have this baby. I don't like the pain, but I want to have the baby. And when the baby's born, she forgets about the pain because of the joy of holding her new miracle of life. And God has designed our body in amazing ways. So I was reading one time that uh, when after, right after birth, a woman's body is flooded with endorphins. That's the body's natural painkiller. And that helps kind of take the edge off of the memory of the pain, um, which is a good thing, because otherwise everybody would probably be single children. <laughs> uh, and then at the same time, God floods their body with oxytocin, which helps them bond, bond with their baby. So I take it out of that passages, um, and what Jesus said to his disciples is, you'll have sorrow, but then you'll have joy. And they had, that was what happened. They were, they were just were devastated when Jesus was killed on the cross. But then when he rose again, like they were extremely joyful. So when you're undergoing a trial, try and focus more on what God is doing with that, the joy that's going to come. Sometimes you may be able to see the joy in a short time. It may be a few years. It may not be till eternity, but the joy will come. Focus on what God's doing in Israel more than you're focusing on your pain. And it actually says in James, the beginning of James, James 1, it says, Consider it all joy when you meet trials, because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So other thing can help is, uh, God promises that everything will uh, eventually benefit us. Okay? It says in Romans 8, 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now notice it doesn't say all things are good. So all things in your life are not going to be good. But everything that happens to you, God will work for good in your life eventually. Okay? Sometimes it will happen, you'll, you'll see it in your own lifetime, other times you won't see it until eternity. But God will work all things uh, for good. So that means there's nothing that can happen to you that God won't turn into good. You can have extremely, somebody can attack you, uh, Satan can attack you, whatever happens to you, God is going to turn into good. And so we can take comfort in that, even though it's not pleasant at the time. And the next verse is also important to remember, Romans eight twenty nine. Why does God allow these trials in our life? One of the reasons is 
For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the first among men, many brothers. God wants us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so he is going to bring things in our life to help us to grow our faith, to make us more and more like Jesus. Um, now, when you're going through something like that, uh, a trial, pain, suffering, um, you're going to feel, feel pretty down. And I've been there enough times myself to, to have felt this many times. And I actually got concerned um, a couple of times, like, Lord, am I, am I not doing the right thing? Am I sinning or something by, by not liking this and not being joyful? I mean, you know, it says to, you know, take joy in your trials. Like, I'm not always joyful when I'm in the middle of pain and suffering. Um, and I was reading about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, in Luke 22, um, this is what Jesus said. He's praying. Jesus is praying to God. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He was in extreme anguish. I don't know about you. I've never sweat drops of blood. It's actually a real thing. It can happen. Um, doesn't happen very often, but in extreme uh, pain and suffering, the capillaries in your sweat glands can actually uh, leak. And so you can sweat what looks like blood coming down. So when you think about it, Jesus was God, right? He was both fully man and fully God. He's God. And so God here is saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus was in extreme anguish. He's saying, Father, remove this from me. He's like, okay, well, I'm not sinning if I'm telling God, like, God, I don't like going through this. I don't want to go through this. If Jesus said that, like, it's okay for me to say that. It's okay for us to say that. But it's important to remember the next thing he said. Uh, He said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so I follow that example when I'm going through something difficult. Said, God, I don't like this. I don't want to go through it. I'd, I'd rather I was done with this, but not my will, but yours be done. God, just do the work that you're trying to do in me and, help, and give me strength. And God will strengthen. And then it says, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. God will do that for us when we're going through those things. God will strengthen. He will walk with us through it and he will comfort us. And then be in agony, he prayed more earnestly. So, Whenever we're going through trial, that should lead us back to prayer to God. And I think sometimes he's brought that into my life because I wasn't being as diligent in my prayer life as I should have been. And boy, when you start suffering, um, prayer comes really easy. (laughs) There's a reason why Christians in persecuted countries are so dedicated to the Lord. And you look at so many Christians in the United States are really casual, uh, casual Christians. Um, and there's a reason for that because persecution forces you. Like you either just say, like, God, I'm done, I'm giving it up, or I'm going to follow you no matter what. So <clears throat> to end up, I want to give you a couple of my favorite quotes on trials. Um, one is from Elizabeth Elliot. God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus. Uh, many of you probably know the story of Elizabeth Elliot, but Elizabeth and Jim Elliot uh, went to take the gospel to the Alka Indians in Ecuador uh, many years ago. And uh, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint ended up being, who was the, flying the airplane, uh, both ended up being killed by the Alka Indians. And later, Elizabeth Elliott w- went back to the Alka Indians 
to take the gospel to them. And they were so incredulous that like, what? who does this? Like, we killed her husband and she's coming back to talk to us. Like, who? nobody does this. It impacted them so much that many of them came to know the Lord. Now, you can imagine Jim Elliot is in heaven. Do you think he's regretting what happened to him? <laughs> he's rejoicing. So many people came to know the Lord because he got killed by the Alcanus. Now, fortunately, God doesn't do that to all of us. Not many people have to go through that. We, we go through much smaller things. And like, you know, God, the things that I go through is much less than what other people have gone through. I can, I can, I can survive this. My next quote, you might recognize the person who gave this next quote, uh, Pastor Rob. Uh, we can trust and find joy in the trials he brings, knowing that they purify and strengthen us. When trials come, ask God for perseverance and faith before you ask him for relief. So this was in a, uh, Pastor Rob sends out a weekly um, uh, devotional. And so if you're not on that, um, I would ask somebody to, to get on that. They're excellent. And uh, this is what the, at the end of one of his from, I think, about three weeks ago. And it was pertinent because like, oh, wow, okay, I'm giving a message on a similar thing. So to end up, I just want to encourage you. Um, it was, in some ways, it was kind of a downer message. Um, God doesn't just bless us with trials, okay? God loves to bless us with good things. And fortunately for us and for me, he blesses with good things much more than he blesses us with trials and, and negative things. He loves, to, he loves to provide for us, just like any father loves to provide their children with good things. God loves to provide us with good things, and he blesses with many of those. But he also blesses us with trials and difficulties and suffering. And why do we need that? So we won't fall away. Again, back to Solomon. <clears throat> If having, if being blessed with all the good things that you could have could keep us connected to God, keep us following God, Solomon should have been one of the most righteous people on earth. But what happened at the end of his life? He sinned by marrying foreign women. He got enticed to worship other gods. He got, Solomon had everything. Everything you could possibly have at that time. He had wealth. He had fame. He had everything. He was a king. He had peace. Everything was supposedly perfect, but he fell away from God. So we need, we need trials and difficulties in our life to keep us connected to God. Without that, we can easily fall away. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that you love us enough that you don't just bless us with good things. You also bless us with trials and difficulties we don't always understand, Father, why you do it. Many things that happen, we don't understand. All the earthquakes that have happened recently, the war that's going on. But we know that for those that love you, that you will use it for good. We don't know how, Lord. We Probably most of it we won't know until we go to be with you in heaven. And we know that many difficult things that have happened, Father, have caused people to seek you. And so we pray, Father, that in all those situations in Turkey, in Ukraine, all the areas of the world, the people that are being persecuted, we pray that it would cause people to seek you out, that many people could come into your kingdom and they could spend eternity with you. Thank you that you have uh, revealed yourself to us, Father, that we can be with you one day in eternity. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.